Dear Lord, thank you, Father, for this church and for caring over it for so many years and for bringing back those who have been here from the start, like the Hollybecks or others, uh, to remind us of your faithfulness and of how you set about to do a work here through your word and have continued to do so. And we are just the latest caretakers of that work, Lord. And uh, as such, Lord, we pray that we have um, been good stewards and continue to be good stewards of what you are intending to do here. We don't do it on our own. We've never done it in our own power. It's always been your work, always will be your work. And yet, Father, you, because of your grace and your love for us, have endeavored to work through the agency of men and women to glorify yourself. Lord, we never want to forget that we come here, Lord, for that reason, to glorify you, to be useful to you in that purpose. For we live our days out in anticipation that as we stand before you on one day to come, you will look upon all that we've done and you will declare to be good and faithful and that we have been a servant in the way of uh, your desires after your own heart. That's our goal, Father. That's why we seek to be here so that we'd be better prepared for that. And you do prepare us, Father, through your word, by your spirit. You call us out of the world and you cause us to be different. And yet, Father, we are also, by our nature, drawn back to it. As the writer this morning is going to remind us, Lord, we must run with endurance. And I pray, Father, that what we hear this morning would inspire us and encourage us to continue that running, that walk of faith that you've given us to walk, Father, so that we may please you. And glorify your name. Give us strength. Give us direction. Give us encouragement, Lord, through your word this morning. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we finished our tour in the Hall of Faith. Did you enjoy that? And I hope you learned a few things from their examples. I know I did, even though I've read that chapter many times. Every time I come back to it, it, it reminds me of something and it teaches me of something new. Ryder began that tour specifically as a function of his fourth warning. Remember the fourth warning in chapter 10? where he explained the consequences of shrinking back rather than persevering onward in our faith. And he was concerned in that warning about Christians who would step back from living with eyes for eternity, as I like to say, and to do so in some vain effort to preserve something in their earthly life that they can't preserve anyway. In the day that he wrote it, the issue was one of persecution. The church had been facing persecution and they were trying to preserve the safety, the relative safety of their life in the Roman Empire by retreating back to a life of Judaism. Though they had come to know Christ as Messiah, they went back to a way of worship which by its very nature declared that the Messiah had not yet arrived. And so they were testifying falsely in that sense to what they knew. They were sacrificing eternal heavenly things to gain temporary passing earthly things. That was the bargain, the stupid bargain the church was making. And the writer issued the warning in chapter 10 to correct that thinking. Don't shrink back. In fact, if you go too far in that direction, you may never come back. That was his concern. So he corrected them in chapter 10. And then in chapter 11, he went to the other direction. He sought to inspire them, to inspire them to live out their witness, even in the face of trials and persecution. He used example after example of the Old Testament saints who did just that. They willingly accepted trials and deprivation and persecution for why? For an opportunity to be rewarded. And he ended that chapter with a conclusion that sums up his entire argument. That's the last two verses of chapter 11. And I know we covered these last time. Let's just take a quick look at them a second time just to remind ourselves of how he finished his thought at the end of that chapter. Verses 39 and 40, he said, 
And all these, speaking of the saints, and all these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised because God had provided something better for us so that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. He says all the saints gained God's approval by living out their faith and they live this way despite not having seen the fulfillment, the full measure of that reward God has for them. And he says it was not God's intention to reward his people in the course of this falling, passing world. This is not where our reward will be found. Notice in verse 40, he turns to us, his audience, and he adds, God has a reason in delaying their rewards, the the saints of the old, their rewards. He says it's because God had something better for us. And as we learned last time, God's plan is to provide the inheritance to the saints all at once. All saints throughout history will enter into the glory of the kingdom together. And together we will all receive our respective share of Christ's inheritance all at the same moment. How glorious will it be to see all the saints marching in together into the kingdom, as the song says. So God's delay in rewarding the saints is part of a plan. One intended to bring all of God's children together on an appointed day. And therefore, the writer now making an application from that truth says, by that same measure, all the children of faith should also be willing to testify through a life lived in a patient, expectant manner. Not trying to rush the plan of God. Not saying to ourselves, we can gain what God has for us here and now, but being willing to wait, knowing he's made everybody wait and he's going to make us wait. For the kingdom. That's where the writer picks up in verse one of chapter 12 with an exhortation that we not grow weary or faint, but rather we run with endurance, knowing that the rewards are at the end. Verse one, he says, therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. The writer begins by referring back to chapter 11 and he says, first, since we have such a great legacy of examples, let's look to those examples and gain inspiration from them. He calls them a cloud of witnesses, which I think is such an artful way of describing them because it reminds us that they still exist right now in spirit form only. They have not yet been resurrected into a new body because that itself awaits the kingdom. Further evidence that they are yet now even still patiently waiting for God to complete the plan. Furthermore, the word witnesses here needs to be clarified because I think if you read it too quickly, you may gain the wrong impression. The word witness here does not refer to an observer. Sometimes we use the word that way, right? I witnessed something. I observed something. That's not what it means. It means a person with a testimony, like a witness on the stand in a courtroom. So, in other words, the writer is not saying these saints are watching us from above. That's not at all what it means. There's no one in heaven right now watching anything that happens on earth. The last thing they care about is this place right now. I assure you of that. What he means is the opposite. We are watching them. Those testimonies, those witnesses. 
And if you are watching them, as you should, as he expects you to, looking at what we saw in chapter 11, as we see this cloud of witnesses that testify to us, we should do what we saw them do. That's the point. So he says, first, since you have such great examples to watch and to learn from, the next thing the writer says is, therefore, lay aside every encumbrance and sin so that you may run the race set before you. We may run the race set before us. Now, there are several important elements to this exhortation. I want to look at them each in detail. And I want to begin with this notion of laying aside sin. The word translated encumbrance, when he says lay aside every encumbrance, that word is used only here in the New Testament in Greek. It's a word that, that's commonly used in relationship to races, to running, actually. You and I might use a different word like drag, aerodynamic drag, or resistance, something that holds you back, anything that negatively impacts a runner's ability to gain full speed. That's the idea of the word. And so obviously, if you're in a foot race, you want to eliminate anything that holds you back, anything that slows you down. Why? Because if you're in a race, you're there for a reason. And the reason you enter a race is to win. Nobody enters a race just to put out the effort and show up like fifth place. I mean, if you knew that going in, you wouldn't bother. The only reason you run is to win. You can't do that, of course, as long as you are encumbered by resistance or drag, at least the kinds that you could do something about. You wouldn't run in a big cape because that's going to hold you back. In fact, swimmers today, they often wear skull caps. Or now the latest thing is you shave every inch of hair off your entire body. That's very common now among Olympic athletes. So they remove every trace of hair, at least the men do it, every trace of hair off their body. Why? Because even the least amount of drag is negatively impacting their ability to do what they're there to do, which is to win a race. It's that important. Well, likewise, Christians want every advantage or should want every advantage we can get because our race is a lot more important than any of these other ones we're looking at as examples. And when we talk about a race here, we're talking about the race to win an eternal prize. Just to be clear, we're not running against each other. Unlike the analogies we're using where you have a group of people running and competing one to another, that's not our kind of race. Who are we competing with or against? Ourselves. We're competing against ourselves in the sense of what Paul writes in Romans chapter 7 when he talks about the duality of the saved person, the saved man. You are a new spirit called by the Lord to follow and please him, but you are still an old body shackled with sin which has as its goal the thwarting of following God. And the two do battle in your very person every day. And this writer is acknowledging that when he says to lay aside, to set aside these things that are encumbering you from doing as God asks you to do. And just to be doubly clear, we're obviously not talking about salvation in this conversation whatsoever. That's a free gift of God. It's not based on your performance. We're talking here about running to please the master who bought you so that you, by pleasing him, might receive a greater share of his inheritance. Remember Paul's own words as he spoke about his own attempting to please the Lord? He uses exactly the same analogy. In 1 Corinthians 9, uh, Paul says this, verse 25. He says, everyone who competes in the games, meaning the Olympics, exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Therefore, I run in such a way, not without aim, I box in such a way, 
as not beating the air, but I discipline my body and I make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Notice how Paul ends that using the same analogy of a race or, or a boxer. He says, I have to exercise self-control in this walk of life, in this run of my life, because he says, how ironic and sad would it be if after all this preaching and evangelizing I've done so that others, by what I say, would become encouraged to do the right thing? What an irony it would be if at the end of my life I let my own sin overtake me for lack of self-control. And through that sin, I displease the master so that I forfeit. I am, quote, disqualified from the very prize I earned through all of that other work. That's a sobering concept. Paul himself might have been concerned that if he didn't run his race, so to speak, well until the end, that he stood the chance of being disqualified for the internal reward that was held out to him. If that's the Apostle Paul's concern, where do we stand? Assuming he is our example and therefore perhaps more mature at this than we are. Where do we stand? Are we as concerned about it as he obviously was? So if you want to follow the lead of the Old Testament saints, like Abraham, like Moses, like the prophets, all the men and women we studied in chapter 11, then you have to begin, this writer says, by setting aside the sin that holds back obedience. And we all understand exactly what this guy is talking about, don't we? I'm not asking you to raise your hand. I'm certainly not asking you to speak up. But if you search your heart, you know exactly what you have to do right now. Now, whether you do it or not, totally different question. But you don't need me or anyone else to tell you what your sin is. What the thing is or things that's holding you back, that's in the way of obedience, that's really the thing in your life that if you were fully transparent with someone you would agree, yeah, that's something I should have dealt with a long time ago. Lay it aside, the writer says. Put it away. Walk away from it. Because in doing so, you are freeing yourself from a drag weight that is literally preventing you from winning a race that you could win otherwise. And if you do so, the writer says, you can expect that the prize that lies ahead of you will far surpass whatever temporary pleasures you are providing for yourself now through whatever sin you are indulging on a regular basis. The fact that this writer could say so matter-of-factly, lay aside your sin, is proof in itself that you can do it. Would you not agree? I mean, he doesn't say, struggle with this and maybe you'll get it. He says, do it. It reflects the fact that this is far more a matter of will than it is of ability. We all have to recognize that though we have been saved from the penalty of sin by the grace of God, we still wrestle with sin. And as we struggle with it and as we persevere over it, we are not furthering our salvation. No, but we are furthering our reward. The Lord won the battle against sin for the sake of our salvation, but he asks us to battle with it now for the sake of our own recompense in the kingdom. I think it's very easy for us to talk about the struggle with sin and in so doing, overlook the fact that we can win. We speak too much about the struggle to our own detriment sometimes, such that we make it appear as though there's no hope. The scriptures don't leave us in that position. The scriptures are very clear. Set it aside. Make a decision. Stick with it. And yes, when you stumble and fall, go back again. Finally, notice how the writer describes this race, this walk of our faith. He calls it a race set before us. 
What he means is the Lord in his sovereign will has prepared a course for you and I each a race of sorts. To put it simply, he has designed our life to go a certain course. Some of us will have strong health. Some of us will not. Some of us will have great wealth. Some of us will have very little. Some of us will know a joyful family life. Some of us will experience great tragedy in our families. Some of us will live peaceful lives of faith and others will be persecuted and will be martyred. We each get a course. The Lord has selected it. We didn't choose him. He chose us. Likewise, we didn't choose our life, but he gave it to us. He set it before us. And then he said, run it well. Run it well. Take what comes and respond in the right way. And the writer says specifically, run it with endurance. You know, endurance by itself implies difficulty, doesn't it? He doesn't say run it with ease. He says run it with endurance. Don't give up like a runner who's rounding the final lap in a long race and staring at the finish line in the distance. The tape is out there in front of him. Would you imagine a runner at that point just sort of stopping and sitting by the side of the track? Wouldn't that have been the most ridiculous thing you'd ever imagine? They've gone that far and they stop. That's what endurance means. To succumb to sin in our case or to indulge our fears or our weaknesses or our proclivities. That's sitting down on the track. And friends, we all do this. This is not unique. We all have struggles. We all have moments, myself included. There's no one in this room that's exempt from this. The course has been set for each of us, so that we will all face, at some point in time, trials. Trials made up of our own temptations, trials made up of others' sin, trials made up of whatever cause. But here's the wisdom that the writer is making available to us in the Word of God. God has set these things in front of us so that we can be qualified for the reward. So that as we face them and endure them and move past them, we are being qualified for a reward. In other words, you cannot win if you don't run. Which is why James opens his letter in such a counterintuitive fashion. You know how he opens his letter, James 1, 2. He says, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance and let endurance have its perfect result, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. We are to consider the trials in our life joy, the writer says, because the existence of a trial in your life is the evidence that God is at work offering you an opportunity to demonstrate endurance. To walk with trust in what the Lord is at work doing in your life. It's to make a sacrifice of time sometimes or to make a sacrifice of treasure or whatever God asks of you so that he can move the kingdom forward through you and he can be pleased with your service and reward you. That's what trials offer. Endurance is not shrinking back, but persevering onward. So when we seek comfort in materialism or ego or lust or drugs or career or whatever that is that causes us to get off the track and to sit down for a while, we are putting at risk our own best interests. We are not enduring a trial. We're letting the trial defeat us rather than us please the Lord through it. And he just learned something about us, and we just learned something about ourselves as well. And, of course, the ultimate example of this is always found in Christ. 
In verse two, the writer says, fix your eyes on Jesus, on his example, because he is the perfect example of someone asked to do the same thing that Christ is asking you to do now. He was, the writer says first, the author and the perfecter of our faith. The Greek word for author can also mean pioneer or originator. What the writer is saying is he authored our faith in the sense that he went before us to establish a way. He set the pace like a pace car now in a road race. Furthermore, as you know from Ephesians 2, he's the one who gave us the gift of faith and brought us into the faith. Moreover, he is the perfecter of the faith. The Greek word for perfecter means to carry through to completion. So he doesn't just start us down the road to salvation. He ensures that he pulls us across the finish line, so to speak, and brings us into the kingdom. So he starts us in the road. He finishes us in the end. Glorification is the work of God in us. But what about all that time in between, which would include the time we're living here right now? Between the beginning and the end is that course, that race that's been set before us. And it has a lot of turns and it has a lot of unexpected detours and uphill pieces and downhill pieces. And that's what's been set. And the writer says, fix your eyes on Jesus, who did exactly what we're being asked to do when he ran his earthly course. Think about the course that God set for his son. Would you want that course? I mean, if you could trade courses, would you take the one that the Father set before Christ? He had an immense trial set before him by the Father. The course of obedience given to Christ was greater than anything we have faced, I would argue. Christ was tempted to seek refuge in the world. That's the whole significance of him going into the desert with the enemy. He was tempted to avoid the cross. He was given options. And obedience required that he would seek to set aside everything he had in life and go to the cross, that was his road, that was his course, that was his endurance test. And he was willing to do that. Why? Look what the writer says. The writer says because of the joy set before him. He had a reward. What was Christ's reward? Well, first it was the joy of pleasing the Father, first and foremost, and in doing so to receive a great inheritance. The Bible says that all creation is now the possession of Christ as his inheritance given to him by the Father who was pleased that he would set aside all of what he had, including his own deity, in the sense that he lowered himself, becoming man, and then died on a cross. So that's, that's our example. So if you want to look for your North Star, this is a new term now in business. We all talk about in business now having our North Star. What is, our, what is the thing we all shoot for in business? I don't know where they got that from, but let's use it. What's our North Star? Our North Star, our target, is to do what Christ did. You know, it's a lot easier to run a race when you know where you're going. Hebrews 12:3, he says, For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Let's consider Jesus in this way, the way the writer's describing him, as the one who shows us how to live a life of faith in the face of trials. What do we learn? Well, we certainly know he endured harsh treatment at the hands of sinners. The writer says that. Will you endure harsh treatment at the hands of sinners? Are you married? Do you have kids? Do you have parents? Do you have neighbors? Are they putting you on a cross? I hope not. They may still be saying nasty things about you. They might be unkind to you at times, unfair. They might deny you things you have rights to, take things from you that they shouldn't take. There are going to be many ways in which the world impinges upon us in unfair, unkind ways, harsh ways, and we will have to experience those things. Now, what are you going to do? Are you going to endure it the way Christ did? 
turning a cheek, loving those who hate you. And when you consider how to respond, consider how he pressed forward anyway to the cross in spite of the fact that he had no sin. It was a completely unjustified step in the sense of what was just. It was unjust for him to have to suffer those things. And yet he endured, he pressed forward, and let that work on your heart. Let that give you strength and cause you to not grow weary. Now, for some of you right now, you've heard this. It makes some sense, I hope. At least I I hope you see that in the text. And yet there's some part of you anyway that might be saying, Steve, you, you don't know what I have to endure. You don't really understand what I've had to deal with in my life. The bitterness I have, the anger I have, the disappointments I hold, the fears, the sadness. If you had had to deal with what I had to deal with, then you wouldn't be standing up there so self-assured and tell me that I can just put all that aside by looking at Jesus and running this course. Well, look what the writer says in verse 4. You've not resisted to the point of shedding blood and striving against sin, have you? In the trials you've endured, have you sacrificed your life for the sins of the world? Have you worked so hard to set aside sin and endure trials that it required that you give your life up in order to face those trials? If that's happened to you, then raise your hand. You see, that's why it's a rhetorical question. That's why he doesn't even bother stopping to give an answer, because it's obvious we haven't, and Christ did. So the writer then says, if you haven't equaled him yet, and he as a human being did that for you, then there's still more you can do. Whatever you have known in terms of your past and whatever suffering you've experienced, it hasn't equaled Christ's yet, so there's more you can do. Endurance is still not unachievable for you. And if your trial brings you to the end of yourself, well then, so be it. It brought Christ to the end of himself. There's no guarantee, you know, as Jesus says, the servant's not greater than the master. So if the father was willing to demand that our master die in the course of pleasing the father, then is it too much to say he might ask us to die to please him? We certainly can't put that off limits, can we? You see the point? The point is, our reward will be based on our endurance for the race set before us. And for some of us, that race is a tougher race. But by the same token, Scripture says, those who are faithful here will be faithful with much also. The point is, to count it all joy is a reflection of knowing God's economy. And God's economy is that when great things are asked of you here and those sacrifices are met with endurance, then great things are waiting for you later. And I assure you, when we all reach the kingdom and we see that that economy at work, the undeniable fairness of God at work, none of us will look back and say, you know, I wish I had had less to endure. I think we will all be very satisfied that what we suffered and endured well is well rewarded in the kingdom. And God's fairness will be self-evident. This church, the one that the writer wrote to, had been seeking to escape their trials in their day, persecutions, life-threatening situations, by retreating to that spiritual life of an unbelieving Jew, testifying that the Messiah was not yet come. Their sin was that attempt to escape, to not endure their trials. And yet those trials had come to them to deliver them into greater perfection as a follower of Christ. And so they had retreated from an opportunity to learn something and to grow. Look at the writer says in verses five and six, he says, and you speaking to that church have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines 
and he scourges every son whom he receives. The trials that they had been sent were discipline measures from God because he loved them. He quotes from Psalms 3. And in that psalm, the psalmist says, don't regard lightly, or what it literally means in Hebrew is, don't reject the discipline of the Lord. When you take on a trial that God gives in the course of your life, which is an opportunity to test the quality of your life and bring reward, when you turn away from that, you're rejecting the discipline of the Lord. You imagine as a parent, if, if your father grounded you for, let's say, a week in your room, as a discipline measure, because you did something wrong. Now, I want you to imagine that every night, instead of obeying your father and staying in your room, being grounded, you snuck out through the window and spent your evenings out doing the very thing he had told you you're not allowed to do. That would be obviously rejecting the discipline of your father. Rather than feeling regret, rather than sitting in their home and learning a lesson, lessons that would pay dividends in the future, they have missed the whole point of the discipline, haven't they? It's as if it never took place. And as a result, they're far more likely to repeat the very sin that got them into trouble in the first place. Only the next time might have much greater consequences, right? The whole idea of discipline is to stop that bad course from going any further. As the writer says in verse 7, he says, It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, so that we may share his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards... It yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. So when you confront a trial of any kind, whether it's an emotional one or a marital one or a physical trial or a financial trial or whatever, what you're seeing, what you're encountering in this course God has set for you is an opportunity to be disciplined by the Lord, to grow spiritually. But friends, you're only going to gain what God has trying to achieve through enduring the trial. Don't retreat from the trial. Endure through it. Because God works with us just like we work with our own kids, he says. He loves us. He doesn't want us to continue in sin or to suffer the consequences of it. He wants us to be rewarded for our endurance. So he brings these trials, these discipline measures, and that over time, as you endure them, you move away from sin and the fleshly behaviors that that are sinful, and toward a sanctified life of walking with him. That's the natural result. But they only have that effect if you don't avoid them. Perhaps we might say that it's unkind for the Lord to bring such things upon us. There's a certain sense of this in the church at times I've heard where people say a loving God wouldn't allow these sorts of things to happen. That's really a a statement that reflects a lot of spiritual immaturity when you think about it. Because the Bible says, as often is the case, the Bible says exactly the opposite of what the world says. The Bible says it is proof of God's love that he brings trials upon his children as discipline measures. When we ask the Lord to give us an easy life, one that's absent trial and disappointments and tragedy, here's what you're really asking him to do. You may not use these words, but here's what you're effectively asking. You're saying, Father, do not discipline me. Allow me to remain as fleshly sinful as I am when you found me. Just leave me as I am, please. That's what we're asking him to do. We're asking him to refrain from growing us spiritually. Now, would a loving father accept those terms? 
Would you accept those terms? If your child asked you to forego any discipline at all so that they could grow up spoiled and immature and self-serving, would you agree to those terms if you love them? I don't see how. As the writer says, no loving father would make that bargain. So, of course, why do we expect an even greater loving father in heaven to do anything of the sort for us? In fact, if he were, the writer says, if he were to neglect us in that way, he would basically be telling the world and us that we're not his children. Because, friends, a principle of scripture is he doesn't discipline unbelievers. There's no point. No more than you can discipline a strange child. I don't want to challenge you to do this, because if anyone takes me up on the challenge, I'll be bailing you out of prison. But you can't go up and spank some stranger's child because they're doing the wrong thing, even if they deserve it. You can't. You don't have a relationship with the child. If you don't have a relationship, you can't act as a disciplinarian. It's just abuse. Well, similarly, the writer is saying, if you really could get your way, if we could really get what we wanted out of life, which is no trials, no difficulties, smooth sailing until I die, what we'd be saying is, I don't want a relationship with God, one in which he would normally act in discipline. We should welcome discipline because it will teach us a lesson. Our earthly fathers teach us lessons that only last a lifetime, only a lifetime. But the Father in heaven teaches us things that last into eternity. That's why in verse 11, the writer says, all discipline, whether it came from your earthly father, whether it comes from your heavenly father, all of it seems sorrowful in the moment. No one loves discipline. No one likes things to happen that are bad. I mean, that's a given. But in the long run, with the benefit of hindsight, you can look back on these things and you can say to yourself, not only was it necessary, but it was worthwhile. Because who I am today is fundamentally different in a healthy way from who I was before that trial. Before that trial, I was self-serving, self-absorbed, didn't have much interest in what it meant to be holy or loving, didn't concern myself with eternal matters, went to church when I felt like it, did what I needed to just to get by. But after that trial, I realized how dependent I am on God on his spirit, on his word, on his people. That part of me changed. That's the benefit of discipline. That's the peaceful fruit of righteousness. And it's more than just about being better now. It's also going to lead you to a better position for facing the next trial and the next trial so that the endurance starts to pay off in that reward. And that's what I meant a minute ago when I said when we show up in the kingdom, We'll look back on that course and we'll be able to point to those moments and we'll be able to say to ourselves, because of that moment, because of that moment, look where I stand today in the kingdom. Thankfully, I had those moments because I knew who I was before and it wouldn't have given me the same result. That's seeing with eyes for eternity even before we're there. But of course, you only gain those benefits if you endure the trials. We have not endured to the point of shedding blood like Christ. So fix your eyes on his example and repeat it. Run the race set before you. Do so with endurance so that you will not be disqualified from the prize that awaits. That's the teaching of Scripture. Let's go to prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for the reminder that we want run a race that you set so that as we face trials, we will not ask, where are you? Or even why would you? But we'll ask the right question. How do I endure? How do I please you, Father? How do I take what you've given and learn the lessons you intend me to learn? How would you put this to work in my life, Father, so that I might glorify you? Help us, Father, to take what we experience and to face it with that kind of endurance and faith. 
Not looking here for our rewards, Father, but understanding where they will be found. And Lord, as others around us face trials, let us face them with them, joining them in compassion, seeking to mitigate, seeking to compensate, for that's how we will be tested as well, Father, in how we respond to others' trials and what we can do and the support that you allow us to provide. Let us continue in love and compassion and and knowing, Lord, that you you don't ask us to face these things by ourselves. But at the same time, Father, let us let us not be tempted to remove them. As Jesus himself prayed, Father, he asked for a cup to be removed, but when it wasn't, he endured. Let us fix our eyes on him. Thank you, Father, for this reminder. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen.